Okay, is it 8 o'clock? <coughs> yeah, this year is... Uh, is Vivian Schechter's younger sister. Um, I think Talmud Torah is a good way to, uh, to commemorate those who were dear to us and are departed. So again, this year, in honor of Le'ilu Nishmatash of Chava Tova Bas Peril. If you look at the sheet, this is the parish of Ayeshev. Right, this year, there are two parashiyot that come out on Hanukkah. Right, this is a very rare kind of occasion. Not unknown, but rare. Right, you have two Shabbatot that belong to uh, Hanukkah. So if you look at the second page of the sheets that, uh, oh, where is it? I guess it's on the, you see at the bottom, there's a Gemara, I quote a Gemara, Masechet Shabbos Tavir Abed Beis, do you see that at the bottom of page two, on top of Rembrandt. Um, the Gemara says, Roma Rava Bar Mechasya Omar Abhama Baguya Omar Rav. The statement ultimately in the name of Rav, who was the first generation of a Moraim in Bovel. What did he say? He says, La Olam Al Yishne or Yishane Adam Bino Bain Habanim. You shouldn't prefer one son over the others. Should obviously, I mean, I guess it doesn't mean that uh, I mean, if you prefer, you prefer, but you shouldn't be obvious about it, about a preference of one son over the other. It's thought to think about the ketonet pasim, the coat of many colors. How much how much wool went into it? How much wool was... How much did you have to pay in the store for the wool that went into the Ketonet Pasim? Bishvil, Mishkal, Shneisla, Ibmilat. I don't know how much that is exactly, but it's not so much. But Yaakov had to order the Ketonet Pasim, so he had to pay for the, he had to pay for the wool. For the colored wool, for the regular wool. Look, is that what you think? Forty shekel? It's, it's, it's not a lot of money. That's what Rav said. That's all we know. We know that there was a ketonic pasim that was given to Yosef that was not given to any of the other, any of the other brothers. A small thing. And he says... The brothers became jealous of him. 
v'yardu avoteinu libitzrayim. And then things went along, rolled along, and the Jews were uh, sent down to Mitzrayim. So when you read a statement like this in the Agadita, so it, it could mean, maybe it's just a statement of a fact. Like, look what happened to Yaakov. He, he caused this all, but we know that he didn't cause it to happen. That this was part of the original intention that Kodesh Baruch told Avram Avinu that they would be exiled. So I guess it means this, that the Jew, that the sons of Yaakov could have gotten to Mitzrayim in any number of ways. Right? They could have gone, they could have gone first class on the Oriental Express or whatever the Oriental Express in those days were, was. But no, it was more complicated than that. There was Yosef, he became king, and then there was slavery, and then there was all sorts of tzarot, and then Moshe had to save them. I mean, it was, it was far from obvious, and all this happened, according to Rav, because of the Ketonet Pasim. Because of this Ketonet Pasim. So you see that, uh, that the Ketonet Pasim, the Ketonet Pasim, according to Rav at least, was central to the story. And we know that it was central to the story because it was mentioned. If it wasn't mentioned, I mean, why would, who would care? But let's see exactly what happened with the Ketonet Pasim. So if you look at the first page, look at the first page, these Psukim are in order, but they don't, they're not, you don't have all the Psukim, only the Psukim that have to do with the Ketonet Pasim. So he says, Yisrael ahav et Yosef mikol banav ki ben skunim hulo. This sounds to me like an excusable kind of love. The brothers well, realize that the father probably has a special relationship with his youngest son. Vasalo ketonet pasim, that's a problem. That is a problem. Asalo Ketonet Pasim. Then, you had the story of Yaakov sending Yosef to look after his brothers. Yaakov was blind to the fact that the brothers were jealous of Yosef and that sending Yosef to look for them was probably a bad idea. But then the Pasuk says, you know, after the, the, the brothers got together and they, uh, and they decided that they were going to do something, right? Uh, something terrible or something not so terrible. Basukhaf Aleph. Basukhaf Aleph says, Vayishma Uvein Vayatsi Lehu Adam. Vayome Lona Kenu Anafis. So, of course, you see, you know, there is this kind of. Um, I mean, the literary play here is very interesting for those of you who have a sense of those kinds of things. Who is Ruvain? Ruvain is the oldest son of Yaakov and the oldest son of Leah. Who is Yosef? Who is Yosef? Yosef is the oldest son of Rachel. Uh, Rachel, who is Rachel? She is the desired wife. Who is Leah? She's not so desired. 
And she keeps saying when she has children, she says, maybe now my husband will love me, maybe now my husband will love me. So the fact that Ruvain sees himself obliged to say to save Yosef is like on some level the Ruvain working against himself. Because Ruvain certainly would like to be the the Bechor, the unquestioned Bechor, right? The firstborn uh, that is unquestioned. But Yosef is his uh, is is his adversary, and here he feels obliged to vayetzilehu biadam vayomelodakenu nafesh. So he says so. So Ruvain taking this responsibility, taking this responsibility, he says, which was a bad thing for Reuben. I mean, not that killing Yosef was good for Reuben, but you have to understand that Reuben was the oldest son, was the oldest son of the, and the first son of, uh, um, of Yaakov. The oldest son of Leah, the first, uh, the, the oldest son of Yaakov. So he saves Yosef. The so here, the parashanut is, uh, is very interesting. Uh, the parashanut is very interesting. Like, uh, what did Ruvain suggest? Did he suggest that Yosef should live? or that they shouldn't kill him. Which is not exactly the same thing. To say that Yosef should live, we should take Yosef, feed him, a, you know, give him a salami sandwich, and sit with him by the camels until we're ready to go home. That's called living. But when you throw him into the pit where it's likely that he might die, it just, he's saving the brothers from killing him. Which is not exactly the same thing as saving Yosef. So here, here the, the Rashi, you look at the Rashi where the Rashi says uh, the, the words Leman Hatzil This is not part of the story. This is just for us. It's as though we're being invited into Ruvain's mind. Right? We're being invited into us. What did Ruvain do? He got the brothers to agree that they should throw him into a pit. They should throw Yosef into a pit. But throw Yosef into a pit. That's not going to save him. That's not going to save him. So how did the Pasuk say? Adam. That Ruvain did this in order to save Yosef from their hands. So Rashi says, Rashi says, It's like a, it's a comment in the Chumash. It's a comment by the, the Holy Spirit to tell us what Ruvain was thinking at the time, not what he was doing. What he was doing could be interpreted in different ways. But what was he thinking? That he was going to save him. She says, He would come later on and he'd pull him out of the, out of the, uh, out of the pit. Ona, ani bechor v'gadol shebikulam. 
He said to himself, I'm the firstborn, I'm the oldest. Lo sirachon elabi. So it turns out, according to Rashi, that he's not a tzaddik, exactly. Lo sirachon elabi, that means if Yosef dies, I'm going to get blamed. This stink is going to be mine. My like people are going to say, it's my fault that this, it's my fault that this happened. Lo sirachon elabi. All right. That's what, that's what uh, Rashi says. Pasuk Kav Gimel. Vayik Hashem Yosef El Echav. Vayavshito et Yosef et Ketanto et Ketonet HaPasim HaShe'alaf. So here the Ketonet Pasim comes back into the story. What are they going to do? They're going to throw him into the pit. Why do they take off his cloak? Why did they take off this robe that his father gave him? <laughs> Rashi says Pasukav Gimel Who shall sif yoter lo aviv yoter alachiv This is what was bothering them This Ketonet Pasim Which is what Rab said in the Gemara in, in Shabbat That's what Rab said That the Ketonet Pasim was the cause of all the difficulty between Yosef and the brothers So when they saw Yosef Coming, what did they really see in their mind's eye? They saw the Ketonet Pasim. Well, there he is, the person with the Ketonet, the Ketonet Pasim. Pasuk Kavdalet. Vayikachehu vayashlichu oto habora. Vaboreikein bomayim. Vaboreikein bomayim, I tell you, you know, has to do with Hanukkah. Because this drusha that's in Rashi, well, this statement that's in Rashi appears in the Gemara and Shabbat in the wider discussion of Hanukkah. Right in the middle of the discussion in Hanukkah, the Gemara explains this pasuk, Vaboreik ein bomayim. And what is the explanation of Hashemash and Vaboreik ein bomayim. A typical kind of Gemara question. If the bar is empty, so obviously there's no water in it. Okay, there's no water, but there may be snakes and scorpions. Scorpions are little dangerous animals sometimes. So, says, uh, so again, if that's the case, this once again is uh, questions the motives of Ruvain. It is Ruvain, Ruvain wanted to save Yosef. Because he didn't want people to say that it was his fault. But in fact, he would be very happy if Yosef disappeared. Right? In other words, a, a person can have conflicting interests, right? And you can feel that you're forced to act in a certain way. It might be the proper way to act. But not because you really want that result, you know. Not because Ruvain wanted Yosef to live. It's just that Ruvain didn't want to be blamed for the death of, for the death of Yosef. So now, after the story, and they sell Yosef as a slave to these wandering uh, Midjanim or Midanim, Pasuk Lamed Aleph says, "Why could Yosef?" I mean, this is the thing that that really annoys them. Rashi says, the the blood of this goat." is like the blood of, of a man. 
you don't have to be a poet to see that even though they haven't killed Yosef, they're going to kill the Ketonet Pasim. Whereas Yosef was sent away to a different kind of death. He was going to be a slave forever in Egypt as far as the brothers were concerned. They got rid of Yosef. But now they wanted to get rid of the hated Kedodet Pasim and they, and they slaughtered it. They slaughtered the Kedodet Pasim until the blood came out of the Kedodet. And now they're going to get back at Yaakov. Yaakov who made them so unhappy because the Ketonet Pasim was given to Yosef, now Yaakov is going to be unhappy because of the Ketonet Pasim. Because uh, these brothers were uh, not fooling around here at all. And they said, You tell us whether the Ketonet Pasim is really dead. Whether this issue between the brothers and Yosef has come to an end. Yaakov recognizes it. Vayomer, Ketonet Bini. Ketonet Bini. It's like my son. It's my son. It's not... Ketonet Bini is the same as saying, it's my, it's my son's coat. It's my son who is dead. It must be uh, that some wild animal got to him. Karof Torah Yosef. So Yosef has been destroyed by the wilderness so that Yaakov says, I was responsible. My son is no longer. The Ketonet has been destroyed, has been slaughtered. Right? And everything that I thought would happen Right, on the simple level, everything I thought about, none of it is actually going to happen. Because there is no Yosef, and there is no Ketonet. And uh, anyway, Rashi mitigates the story a little bit. You see where it says in this Pasuk Chayara Achalatu, Pasuk Lamed Gimel, Pasuk Lamed Gimel, Chayara Achalatu, Rashi says, in other words, there's some problem. I mean, there's a question whether the Torah can tell us things that are not true and so force us every year in Kriyat Torah to stand at Shul and say something that is not true. For example, Chayara'a uh, Achalatu. I mean, that's just not true. That's not what happened. So why does the Torah write the words of Yaakov Avinu, which were mistaken, misguided, whatever, and are not true? Shouldn't shouldn't the Torah be the fact, I mean, the Torah is called, as you know, it's called Emet. What are the names of Torah? It's Emet. 
So if the Torah is Emet, why should the Torah say things? Why the, it's true that Yaakov said this. But it's also true that he, he was wrong. It's a wrong statement. So listen to what Rashi says. Rashi says, Nitzmitzabo Ruach HaKodesh. This is really a prophetic. Nitzmitzabo Ruach HaKodesh is like he prophesied, but he didn't know that he was prophesying. It was like a nitznuts. It was like a spark. A spark of, of prophecy. Spark of prophecy came out. Nitzins of Ruch HaKodesh. So floshitit garebo eshet potifar. Like he knew chayara achalatu is referring to what's going to happen to Yosef. Not what did happen to Yosef. That what was going to happen to Yosef was that he'd have a run-in with Potifar's wife. And that would be the chayara'ah that he would have to deal with. The lava lo gilalo HaKadosh And so Rashi says, how come HaKadosh Baruch didn't tell Yaakov? I mean, after all, why did Yaakov sit and suffer for 22 years thinking that his son was dead? Why didn't he just tell him, like, quietly, in a corner, or leave him like a note, leave Yaakov a note that, don't worry, I'll say, it's fine. He's going to save the world. He says, lava lo gilalo HaKadosh Baruch Hu Shechrimo v'kililu et kol misha yigale. Echrimo v'kililu et kol misha yigale. V'shitfu ha-kadosh bochu yibahem. It's almost as though the brothers, the brothers, if God said, any, any of us who, who tells the story, tells what really happened, will be cursed by heaven. V'shitfu ha-kadosh bochu yibahem. And they, they made a kadosh bochu a partner to this, to this madness. Yitzchak knew that Yosef was alive. Yitzchak said, how could I tell Yaakov? HaKadosh Baruch doesn't want to tell Yaakov, so how could I go tell Yaakov? So Rashi here is a little bit stuck. Right? It's a little hard to understand what Rashi what Rashi is saying, but Rashi brings up the question correctly. How is it possible that Kodesh Mohan didn't tell Yaakov? Why did Yaakov have to suffer all these years? You know, the Chazal say that Yaakov spent those years with Lovon. He spent those years with Lovon, and he was not performing Kibbut Avraim, and therefore, the 22 years, but why, why is it so important that he should know that, that Yosef was, think that Yosef was killed? Uh, out in, uh, in near Hebron someplace. Okay, that Rashi doesn't explain. One more pasuk. One more pasuk. Vayikra Yaakov Simlotav. Now this is this is an act of Avilut, right? This is an act of Avilut to tear to rend your garments. And we still do it today. Right? This, uh, we read the garment. But So we know that this is, this is the way of Avilut. In those days, we saw it in Yonah. Remember from after Yonah that all the people in Ninveh put on this sackcloth. They wore sacks in Avilut. In Avilut, meaning that they lose, that's what Avilut is to a certain extent, it's a loss of dignity. It's a loss of a place in the community. 
the tragedy is so overwhelming. The tragedy is so overwhelming that you, uh, that, that the Avelim, that the mourners, have no way of resolving uh, the fact that, that, that someone dear to them is no longer in the world, and the world. I mean, they have no way of resolving their own position in the world. So Avelut is a period of time in which people come and pull you back into the world. And they reconnect you. They reconnect you to the world. That's, that's what Avelut is until you're, 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 you're whole again and you're able to go out and you're able to put up with the fact that there are things that we don't understand and they're part of our existence and, and we have to go on. We have to go on and do what we do. So this is Avelut, but of course there's no way to ignore the fact that Yaakov Avinu's response to the... To the uh, uh, to the Ketonet Pasim, which was slaughtered, the Ketonet Pasim itself was slaughtered, is that he removes his own clothing. In other words, the clothing that he had, which, uh, which made Yaakov into Yaakov, were removed. So there was no Yaakov, there was no Yosef, right? It was Yosef. Yosef without the Ketonet Pasim is not Yosef. And Yaakov, without, and Yaakov without his garment is not Yaakov to a certain extent. I just look at the Rashbam. Look at the Rashbam. You see Pasukav Gimel in the Rashbam. Ketodetapasim. Lo iskira eler mozdechashihi gama tchila hasina. So the Rashbam says, as the Gemara. As the Gemara says in Shabbat, right, the statement of Rav, which obviously the Rashbam got it from there. I mean, we can't, it's hard to suspect the Rashbam of not knowing the Gemara. Like he knew the Gemara. So he says that the reason the Ketonet Pasim is mentioned, even though it has no importance in the story, is that to tell us, I don't like that. He says, no, but it makes sense in the context of the story. The Rashbam doesn't really explain it, but he said, since later on the Ketodet Pasim becomes important in the story, so it's mentioned here to just tell us where this Ketodet Pasim came from. I think the way I am trying to, I, I try to explain it, is that, that the Ketonet Pasim is a lot more central to the story than uh, the Rashbam, the Rashbam thinks it is, and certain of the comments of Rashi lead me to think that. Okay? Let's turn and look at the second page. The second page You have this posuk. You see that posuk? I'll tell you in a minute where it is. It's interesting posuk. It's about the brothers having left Egypt, opening up the sacks of meal that they had, and discovering that what they discover? That they got their money back. Right? So what did they do? 
Vayikru simlotam. Vayikru simlotam. What is Vayikru simlotam? What? Yeah, well, what, 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 were they, what were they rising Korea about? They were, they were rising Korea about themselves. Because they felt that they were now on the verge of, of some terrible punishment. So you see, so you see that someplace in the story, the brothers get specific comeuppance. Specific, that is to say, on the one hand, they took the beged away from Yosef. They forced Yaakov to remove his clothing and exchange it for the mourning suit. And they themselves are forced into the same, into the same uh, uh, situation. Look at the Medrash Rabbah. Look at the Medrash Rabbah. Vaikra Yaakov Simlotaf. Here's a medrash. This is the this is the medrash. The story that we saw, it's already in the medrash. Shvatim means the sons, the sons of Yaakov. They caused their father to rend his garments. They where did they pay the price for what they had done? The Mitzrayim. Shneemar vayikru simlotam. Simlotam. They rend their garments. That's the passage that we just learned. Right? Yosef garam lashvatim mikroa. Yosef garam lashvatim mikroa. Amad ben beno v'nifralo shneemar. So what does that mean? Yosef Garam? Yosef caused the brothers to rend their garments. That's the same Pasuk, right? The same Pasuk by Yikra. So Yosef caused the brothers to rend their garment. Amad ben Benov and Ephraimo. Vayikra Yoshua Simlotaf. Vayikra Yoshua Simlotaf. Then, Binyamin Garam Meshvatim Mikroa. Vayikran Yisrael. Binyamin. Well, it's the same thing, Binyamin, where the money was found in his, or then the, the, the cup, where all had to do with Binyamin. So Binyamin garab l'shvatim mikroa ve'chan nefralo v'shushan abirash ne'ma'avayikra Mordechai et begadav. Right, Mordechai was the son of the son of the son of the son of the tribe of Binyamin. Minasheh garab l'shvatim mikroa v'figak mitkaru d'achlato chetziab eretz ayadein v'chetziab eretz kinan. So you see that the Medrash. That's enough. The Madrash sees acts of tearing your clothing as being of such significance that the expectation in the Torah is that min hashamayim, there'll be a midah keneged midah. It's not just like pushing somebody or even hitting somebody or, or doing them in business, but making somebody rend his garments 
is seen as being such a, uh, a colossal event that we expect the Mida, Keneged Mida, to, uh, to be invoked. Now, I just want to read two more psukim, which will help us understand the direction that we are going in. You know, when Adam and Chava, when Adam and Chava uh, ate from the Eitzadat, and they did this, uh, they sinned in Ganeda, the Pasuk says that Tipakachna Einei Shnehem. Tipakachna Einei Shnehem. Pikeach is a person who's aware, who has an Tipakachna Einei Shnehem. They, they, none, they became aware of something. There was something that they knew that they had not known before. What was that? V'yedu ki erumim heim. They knew that they were naked. That's what the Chumash says. V'yedu alei te'ina v'yesu lem chagorot. Right? So let's look at Rashi. That the word that they are not talking about, the Torah is not talking about the fact that they saw that they were naked. But they understood that they were naked. What do you mean they understood? What was they to understand? The next Rashi. Even a blind person knows when he is naked. What did they what did they suddenly understand? They became naked of the one mitzvah that they had to keep because they they, they forego it. They for forewent it. <laughs> Allowed it to dissipate, to disappear. Rashi says, The thing that they messed up with helped them to fix themselves. But the other trees didn't want anything to do with them. Why is it that the tree was not, uh, wasn't clear what tree it was? So that he talks about, Rashi explains about, uh, about the Te'ina. That the Te'ina was the name of the tree which held, from which this fruit was eaten. Okay? So the Adam and Chava, when they were aware, they became aware made themselves clothing. They clothed, clothed themselves up. They covered themselves up. Rashi says, Rashi says, You see the Rashi, It's like the, the fingernails, like your fingernails are stuck to your finger somehow. So the cut note or that were made by Kodesh Pochel was skin, not only skin tight, but it was like their skin. 
It was. It became like them. Mudbakim al oran. They were. They were glued onto the. Onto their skin. Yesharim davar abamin haor. And there are others who think that katod or with an iron means that it was made from from leather. Chikon semer haranavim shurach becham basalem katod mimel. The important thing is, I think that that. Uh, that it was divine intervention that produced the wardrobe. It was according to Rashi, none of the trees wanted to help Adam and Chava and offer them, them clothing, something to make clothing, only the Teina. Along came the Rebbeinish Lord, the Rebbeinish Lord said, no, it can come from ore and, and other things as well. So HaKadosh Baruch said, I made it a permanent feature, made clothing a permanent feature of human existence, what Rashi says, or, kadot or, it was, it was stuck to them. Right, they became, in other words, like, like clothing became natural. And nakedness became unnatural. That's what happened, besides whatever else happened. Besides the fact that they did their various, besides the fact that they each received the punishment, and that they were kicked out of Gan Eden, all of that is true. But one more thing happened. One more thing happened, and that was that people, people would now naturally wear clothing. And it would be unnatural for them to run around naked. I know that there are exceptions. I also used to read the National Geographic avidly. But generally speaking, it's still true that people wear clothing. It's, it's generally true. Right? And they feel that it's, for some reason, that it's unnatural to be naked, even though the animals in the world who did not go through the Ganeiden experience don't have this feeling. Animals, you know, they're natural, generally, unless they're pets, in which they become unnatural, of course. But, but if they are out in the wild, so they, they are the way they are. The other way they are, they don't, they're not embarrassed at the fact that they are the way they are. We are, we're embarrassed. We have Bouchard. We have Bouchard. The compensation for Bouchard, the compensation for Bouchard is clothing. And clothing, clothing is about, is about who I would like to be. Uh, Not generally who I am. It's, it's who I would like to be. If I'm overweight, so I wear clothing that makes me look slimmer. If I'm thin, I can wear clothing that makes me look heavier. It, it, there's a certain aroma. It's not true that clothing only protects you from the elements, so to speak. But clothing is an image. Clothing is an image, right? They say that. See, my family, nobody likes the clothing that I wear. And they keep hacking a Chinese about that. Why? Because they think, they think I should look like some image that they have. Right? Who made the image is not always clear. But in any event, I'm still fighting the good fight, although I feel that I may lose. 
Now, clothing is not just, it's, not, it's the antidote to bouchard. It's the antidote to shame. And, and it's, it's sort of saying, I am what I look like. Now let's take the story of Yosef and, and Yaakov. What did, Yo, what did Yaakov want to say? What did Yaakov want to say? Yaakov wanted to say, even though fate, somehow, Kodesh took, uh, took my wife, my beloved wife, Rachel, and forced me to marry her second, which meant that the older children, all the children were the children of Leah and not the children of Rachel. But I would like the kingship of Israel to go to, to Yosef. And therefore, I'm going to give him princely garb. I'm going to give him princely garb, and the princely garb that I'm going to give him is the ketonet, is the ketonet pasit. So on that matter, Rav says in the Gemara in, uh, in uh, um, Shabbos, it's not a good idea to choose a favorite son. It's not a good idea to preempt the system, so to speak, by giving out clothing. Now you know that in our tradition, like in, in, uh, in what we call Torah, clothing, very, very special kind of clothing, is associated with the Kohen Gadol. The Kohen Gadol had special clothing as opposed to the king. We don't know that the king had special clothing, but we know that the Kohen Gadol had special clothing. We also know, as the Ramban says in the beginning of the parish of Pitzaveh, that the special clothing was fashioned after the clothing of kings that existed in the world at that time. Which king especially? Is, uh, is brought by the Ramban as the model for a, a well-dressed uh, a monarch, Achashverosh. Achashverosh, because in the, in the Megillah, the clothing of Achashverosh is noted time and again. And that Mordechai eventually received the clothing and the house, of course, of Homa. And it was the the, the position demanded a certain kind of clothing. So what happened was, what happened was in this story, that Yaakov, I mean there are two kinds of forces that are happening at the same time. Yaakov was punished because he didn't know for 22 years that, uh, that his son was still alive. And that was certainly a terrible punishment. But what was he punished for? What was Yaakov punished for? Yaakov was punished for trying to make Yosef king. And the reason that he was able, that he was able to give him the Ketonet Pasim, right, he couldn't keep it. Yosef couldn't keep the Ketonet Pasim. The intention that Yaakov had was that he should be the king in Israel. But he was able to receive the Ketonet Pasim because Yosef became the king in Egypt. And even though Yosef was the king in Egypt, who ultimately became the king in Israel, for whichever reason, that was Yehuda. And Yehuda, it must have been known, it wasn't Druve, but it was Yehuda, who also had a hand in saving uh, Yosef. 
But Yaakov must have known that Yehuda would become the king in Israel. So Yaakov was punished for those 22 years of not knowing that his son uh, was still alive. And that punishment came because Yaakov gave the Torah Tassim and because Yaakov must have known that Yehuda was the one who was going to get Malchus, get kingship in Israel. And yet, he tried to usurp that by giving the Ketonet Pasim, by giving the Ketonet Pasim to, uh, uh, to Yosef. That's the only way to understand the fixation that the brothers had as a community on the Ketonet Pasim. They removed it from Yosef, they slaughtered it, they put it into blood, they brought it back to Yaakov Avinu, shoved it in his face and told him, Ah, you see what you have done, Yaakov. You have uh, uh, destroyed, you've destroyed uh, Yosef. You've destroyed uh, because you wanted to, uh, to go beyond your authority and make Yosef the king over all of us. And that, of course, takes us back to the dreams that Yosef had, where Yosef declared himself king. And, of course, all of these things, this tension... And it was, was based on a mistake, because Yosef truly was going to become the king, but the king in Egypt, in Egypt of the Egyptians, and not the king in Canaan of the, of the Jews. And even though he wielded a tremendous authority in Egypt, and he was able to organize things, but he wasn't the king. He wasn't the king. And even though Yaakov, you know, it's a different, it's a different story. Yaakov, you know, tried to adopt Yosef's children and include them in the, uh, in the system which would enable one of them to become king, uh, that also turned out to be, uh, to be impossible. I would just like to, uh, I would not like to leave without mentioning something about Tanis. And so, the Ktore Pasim don't work out with Hanukkah so well, so I'll tell you something else. There's a page here which if you have uh, the energy you could look at it's uh, it's the Lekuti Halachot Lekuti Halachot you know the Lekuti Halachot Rav Nosen the, the outstanding Talmud of uh, Rav Nachman of Braslov had an interesting way of looking at things so I just want to read with you a few lines I finished the first part of the year sometimes <laughs> you want to know no there's no connection I mean there's always a connection between everything but I'm not presenting it as a connection. I'm just telling you that there is this Torah of Nosson. Nosson says this, I thought you should go 8765432.1 and Beis Hillel said 1234.56 like we do. This of course always leads me to think that the Jews could never agree about anything. I mean, why would they have a... Why, uh, how could you possibly have a machloka? So the Gemara... The Gemara talks about it conceptually. Right? There's like, like, like... You have to, like, compare it to something. So, so if you go... One, two, three, four... That's called Malin Bakodesh. Even though that's also a question. What the Gemara says? That, that whenever you do Kedusha, when you're going to make Kedusha, you should make from less to more. And uh, Beshamah says, no, if you look at the, the, the sacrifice that are brought on Sukkot, you'll see that there are 
more the most the first day and every day they get less. So there's a model in the Torah for going in the opposite direction. Along comes Rav Nassim. Rav Nassim says, the first pasuk in our parasha says, Yeshev Yaakov, right? What's the continuation of the next phrase? That's Migurei Aviv, Migurei. So that word Migurei is understood in the Medrash as possibly meaning Geyurim. Giyurim. Giyurim meaning people who are brought close to the Torah, to Yiddish guide that we know that Avram Avinu did this and apparently Yitzchak now and Yaakov, that's what they did. It says, Binyan Itkarvut HaNefashot HaRechokot Ma'od Ma'od. He says, there are people who are really far away. Rav Nosson says. I mean, of course, you know, he was living in a different world. Is the a world where Jews, you know, in the little villages, all the Jews were, all the Jews are from? She'ein ra'uy min hadin l'karvan. She'beit shamai omrim pochet v'holech. La'alima or me'em shelo yitkavu. He says there are people who are so far away, who have, so, who have lost so much their connection with Yiddishkeit, that you really shouldn't bring the light to them. And that's what Beit Shammai said. Beit Shammai said, sometimes you have to know that the light diminishes, that there's nothing you can do about the situation. Beit Hillel Omrim Beit Hillel says, no, it doesn't matter what the situation is. More light. He says, even those people who seem to us to be so far away, incorrigible, nothing can change them. The light of the Torah will not affect them. And therefore, our best gambit, according to Beit Shammai, is a little less, so we won't talk to them. We won't deal with them. We won't try to bring the light to that corner of, of the world. And Beisheol says, no, everybody, ultimately, everybody will be affected, will be affected by life. This is like a, on some level, it's almost a pragmatic question. Like if I, if I go to them, are they going to affect me? Or am I going to affect them? So Beit says, they might affect you, stay away. And Beit says, no, no, no. Light always wins. So bring the light. In the ninth line. And you know that some of the stories about Rav Nachman of Ratzel of the Rebbe was like that. You know, when Rav Nachman came to Uman, when Rav Nachman came to Uman, he must have been uh, maybe 33. When he died, when he was 37. So he, uh, he was at the height of his power, so to speak. But he decided there was a doctor in Uman. They had told the story. There's a doctor in Uman. You know, a doctor in those days 
you couldn't be firm. You couldn't be a doctor and be firm. So, but the Polish government or the Ukrainians or the Poles, I mean, whoever it was, were interested in getting people from rural areas to study medicine. And they would even allow them to study in the famous medical schools like the school in Warsaw or the school in Kiev. They would allow them to do that, but on the proviso that they would go back to be doctors in the place from which they came. That was the deal. I mean, if you were a Jew from a Jewish town, you could become a, do- a doctor. But only if you'll go back to nowhere to practice medicine. And that was, they figured that that was a good idea. And maybe it was a good idea in those, in those days. So in Oman, there was a doctor. Now imagine somebody comes from Oman, maybe he grew up as a, like a little film kid, gets into the University of Warsaw, and he has to go six years, study six years, seven years working out. What are the chances that he's going to come out through? Zero. That's exactly what happened. There, were no, there was no such thing as a from Jewish doctor. A. Loha Yachazed. In order to be a from Jewish doctor, it would have to be a non-Jew who became a doctor and then converted. You know, but it couldn't be a Jew who became a doctor and was from. That was, that was not possible. So there was a doctor in Oman. And the doctor in Oman, doctor in Oman was, uh, was a doctor, was very highly regarded, respected. You know, those days, uh, the doctors wore frocks. And the Rosh Yeshiva wore whatever they had. Right? It was like, uh, but in those days, doctors really had a sense of themselves of being, you know, they wanted to walk down the street, and everybody should notice, there goes the doctor. It was like, uh, um, you yeah. know. So anyway, anyway, so the Rav Nachman, they say, Rav Nachman, where have you been? Rebbe, you know, you're away, the whole afternoon. He says, oh no, I was with the doctor. Okay, next day, where are you? Where were you, Rebbe? He says, I was with the doctor. He says, what are you doing with the doctor? He says, oh, we'll play chess. He plays I go in the afternoon. He plays chess. I play chess. We play chess together in the afternoon. This goes on for a while. The Hasidim come to Rav Nachman and say, listen, I mean, you know that you're a controversial figure and not everybody, not everybody is in favor of Nachman of Braslavism. But how are we going to defend the fact that our Rebbe is playing chess with the doctor who is at Apicurus uh, every afternoon? I mean, what are we going to say to the, uh, to the other Hasidim who are looking for a, a reason to kind of uh, uh, ignore your greatness? Sir so Nachman says, look, I can't help myself. He says, I don't understand how someone can insist that he doesn't have a father and mother. They said, what do you mean? He said, he says, the doctor says that he doesn't believe. He has no faith. So I want to know, I want to explain to me how you could say, how a person could say that he doesn't have a father and mother, which in modern language might mean, how could it be that you come from nowhere? They come from nothing. There's, you know, this, uh, this well-known proof which, is, uh, which comes under various different kinds of attacks at different, different times. So that for Rav Nachman of Bratzla, according to the story, right? Stories are stories, but you know, you don't tell the same stories about everybody, except an arch scroll. 
<laughs> so that you don't let them in Oscrow, let them in Oscrow. You don't tell the same stories about everybody. Rabbi Nachman said, Rabbi Nachman said he could not believe that there was somebody beyond the pale, so to speak. Someone who could not be affected. Someone who could not be, could not be uh, 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 turned in the right direction. And the person that, in his mind, was the ultimate, uh, uh, the ultimate uh, candidate for this reconstruction was the doctor in Uman. And he was willing to play chess day after day after day to find out why the doctor came to the conclusion that he didn't have a father or a mother. Not why he concluded that he couldn't keep the Torah and the mitzvahs. That's a secondary kind of question. But the main question, this idea of being an atheist or an agnostic, is that he couldn't understand, Rav Nachman couldn't understand how anybody could come to that conclusion. So again, Rav Nachman says, Rav Nachman said that Rav Nachman of Bratzlov lit the candles in his own life like uh, Whereas there were other Rebbe's who were suspicious, who were not interested in everybody coming, uh, coming by them. And this is a, uh, a difference of opinion that, uh, that we have to this very day, right? The people have, uh, like, the, the strategically, uh, what should we do? What should we do? I mean, think everybody is uh, uh, appreciative more than appreciative. It's, a whole, it's like absolutely remarkable what Chabad has been able to accomplish by just assuming that everybody is worthy of attention. I mean, it's such a, it's such a remarkable idea that we have no way of, uh, we have no way almost of integrating it with ourselves because we're not like that. But how do they do that? How do they do that? How do they get, you know, you get a posting from some mysterious uh, Hosting center, and they say, "Okay, you're going to Manchuria. Fine, I'll go to Manchuria. What are you going to do there? Well, we'll get there. We'll see. You know, I mean, it's like to them, it's so obvious that this is reasonable that it's very difficult to discuss why it's reasonable. Like, like you say, what are you doing? So I go to medical school. So we say, is that reasonable? Like nobody would say that. Of course, that's the most reasonable thing in the world." But these, this Chabadnik, he's going to Manchuria. He thinks that's perfectly reasonable. What are you going to do? He says, I'll do that sandwich. It's the Jews who come along with eat food. Perfectly reasonable. There is, and this, uh, uh, this uh, system has worked. On the other hand, it's also true that many communities of Jews, by maintaining the insularity on some level or other, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, all Jews, all Jews, certainly from Jews of different stripes, um, uh, are insular. They protect themselves. They don't let everybody in. And uh, that insularity has proven to be beneficial to us. Right? We, there are more of us now than there were. There are more of us who act in a certain way than there, than there were. I mean, it's quite, it's quite remarkable. It's, it's, in spite of the fact that, uh, that there's a lot of intermarriage uh, in the Jewish people, there's also a lot of strong communities in, uh, within the Jewish people. So that Beit Shammai and Beit Shammai, that's why there's a bachlokis. There's a bachlokis because even if you determine that one of the shikot, one of the positions is stronger than, better than, 
more acceptable that the other shita lives as well. I mean, that's Beit Shammai. Beit Shammai is the future. It's the end. The end of all ends is Beit Shammai. So this is Rav Nosson. Rav Nosson said that Machlokes between Beit Shammai and Beit Shammai comes to teach us that we have to make a choice. We either bring the light every place, even places where it seems that it won't do any good, or we keep the light and strengthen the communities that are uh, more easily more easily strengthened. We paskin like Beis Hillel. We paskin like Beis Hillel. But we don't dis- disavow the existence of Beit Shammai. I say once again, I remind you that this year today was in honor of Li'ui Nishmosa Shal Chava Tova Bas The Nishama should have an aliyah. This is the first year site. I wish you Chag Urim Sameach Shabbat Shalom in that order. First you light the Hanukkah candles and then you light the Shabbos candles. And you know that tomorrow the Hanukkah candles have to burn a long time. At least a half hour longer than usual. So if you use candles, you shouldn't use those little Hanukkah candles that you got like from some organization. But if you use Shabbos candles, you want to use candles, number 20, I found, is always very good. In Israel, you could buy, the number 20 means the number of candles in the package. Right? So the number 20 candles are smaller than the number 10 candles. Because the number, it's the same size package. It's just that the number 10 package has 10 candles in it, and the number 20 package has 20 candles, which I thought is pretty clever. Chagorim Sameach, Shabbat Shalom. What? So what? Ah, in memory, I'm sorry.